Hello, everybody. Welcome. What's up, citizens? Hey, give it up for the band. They did a great job. Our music team. Great work. We're so thankful to have a team that works. Hey, they rehearse every single week. They prepare these songs. They pray about the songs that we're going to sing. Uh, they work hard to, uh, to um, not to perform, not to make themselves look good, not to make themselves sound good, or to have you guys be like, oh my gosh, that was so cool. You're on the worship team. But to lift high the name of Jesus because we believe it's a valuable and important thing that we do. It's an important thing that we do with our lives and our voices. And we've been given our lives to give everything that we have right back to God, to deliver him praise that he deserves. And so we're thankful for the team for doing that every single week. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We kind of have a two-point sermon tonight. Well, we do have a two-point sermon, but it's kind of two different stories that we're going to look at here in chapter 6. We're going through a whole chapter. Everyone say, whoa. We're going through all of Acts chapter 6, and it's only 15 verses long, but... There's some really cool truths in here that I'm super excited to look at. Two things tonight. Two things that I really want you guys to know. Two things from the very beginning I'm going to tell you that we see here in this passage. We see a ministry multiplied and we see a ministry challenged. The whole book of Acts we've been seeing so far, the ministry of the word, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the early church is growing and expanding and multiplying and every single thing is being thrown at them. Right? You ever heard they threw everything in the kitchen sink at them? Has anyone heard that phrase? This is kind of like another instance where it's like, let's see what else like, can come up against the church that is just going to get completely eradicated. We've seen a few things pop up in the life of the early church trying to divide it. We saw corruption through Ananias and Sapphira, people who lied to the Holy Spirit who were trying in that moment to go against what God wanted for the church. We see outside oppression coming from the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the rulers, the authorities at the time, are actively threatening the church, saying you cannot speak what? Does anyone know? Not the good news, not all this stuff. It says, no, you cannot teach in the name of who? Jesus, not God, Jesus. You cannot teach in that name. And so we see all kinds of opposition and corruption and things being thrown at the church that Jesus and the Lord through his Holy Spirit has completely taken care of in order to preserve and to protect his church. And he's done so for 2,000 years. Isn't it so cool that you're part of something that God has literally been protecting for so many years? It is his heart for, the, for humanity to grow his church it is his heart for us to belong and be connected to a space where we get to hear his word, where we get to unite with other believers in, in prayer and in worship. God has been protecting his space. God has been protecting his church for thousands of years. And this book is amazing because it shows us exactly what it is he's protecting us from. Corruption didn't stop the church with Ananias and Sapphira. The arrests and the threats from the Sanhedrin couldn't stop the church. But now we're going to see a new challenge here in the first few verses of Acts chapter 6. A new challenge approaches in the church complaining and disunity from within. And what are the believers going to do about it? Look at verse, six, uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve these tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, 
and we will appoint them to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timian, and Paramus, and Nicholas, and proselyte of Antioch. And they set up before the apostles and prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We watched uh, a little bit of growing pains. I don't know if you guys have had this when, like, you, if let's say you're in a sport or something, or like you try and work out. Um, I've been trying my hardest to work out. It hasn't gone super well. It's like I could work out, or I could like sit at home and hang out, and like sometimes, you know one wins over the other. But I don't know if you've gone through a season where you are intentionally going after something in a goal, whether it's uh, your physical health, uh, whether it's you're trying to grow your capacity uh, in your academics, whatever it may be, there's always growing pains when things are growing, right? When you are growing as a person, physically, emotionally, whatever it may be, there's always growing pains. And this is a very unique season in the life of the early church where it is growing so big and it is such a good thing that there's a few aches and pains along the way if the Lord takes care of it. God, I pray that tonight you would reveal to us what it is that you want us to learn, uh, that we wouldn't be uh, apathetic, that we wouldn't ignore your word, but we would dive into the truths that you have for us tonight. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verse 1, now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number. That's something to praise God for. Uh, sometimes there's this debate like, are good churches bad? Are they, uh, are they you know, what, how big is too big? And I don't know, we see all throughout the book of Acts that this is something to be celebrated, right? There's not a specific number that we're trying to reach as an organization, or there shouldn't be. Uh, but growth is a good thing. When the ministry of the word increases, we should be thankful for that. When your small group gets to the point where it's so big that you kind of have to talk about, do we have to multiply this thing? That is something that is awesome. When a group of people comes to your Bible study and there's just too many people there and it doesn't seem very efficient, you think, wow, maybe we'll have two Bible studies. Growth is always a good thing, but it comes with its unique set of challenges. A complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. As the church grows, so does the needs of the church. As a ministry grows, so does the needs of the ministry and meeting the needs of the ministry. As the church grows, so does the temptation to be divided. A strong accusation is brought before the disciples from the Hellenists. Uh, the Hellenists, to, to just really short here, uh, were the, the Greek Jews. Uh, they're not ethnically Jewish people, and so they were uh, from other parts of the world, but they came to Jewish faith and now have faith in Christ. And so they were called the Hellenists, but they were complaining against the Hebrews. And so there is a divide here ethnically, uh, you know, where they grew up, where they were from, languages. Uh, they spoke Greek. They acted like the Greeks. And so this is a pretty serious accusation. You might read that without any context and think, huh, I'm not really sure what that means. But one group of people, again, all falling under the Jewish faith and now, of course, faith in Christ all together in Jerusalem. One side is complaining against the others for the daily distribution, which means uh, that word daily distribution 
um, you know, going back to a few chapters, like Acts chapter 4, they were giving everything, that they were selling their things, and they were living together. Everyone had everything that they needed. None of them said that the thing that they had was their own. That included food, that included shelter, that included clothing, whatever it may be. And so it, we get the illusion here, and it goes to show us that uh, there was some sort of ministry that was happening on a daily basis for widows. And many, many times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament after this, we see that God has a real big heart for people uh, who are widows, for people who have lost their spouse. Uh, many people in this culture would have, um, uh, the men would have been older, the women would have been younger when they got married. And so at some point in time, it could have been 10, 15, 20 years difference between them. And that day and age is very acceptable. And so naturally, by the time you're 50 or 60, there was a lot of widows in the community of faith. And one group is saying, hey, our people are being rejected. Our people are being rejected. And there were complaints rising against the Hebrew. Look at that word, complaint. What is complaining? What is complaining? The Old Testament uses the word murmuring or grumbling. To murmur or grumble is basically to verbally express that you don't like something, right? All the time in my household, there will be small murmurs about the temperature of our home. This is a common thing when you're married. One day, hopefully, maybe for some of us in the room, I think that a perfect temperature is when it's nice and cool and you want to wear like a hoodie and you're just like, it's so nice and cool right now. And some people in my household think that as long as it's 80 degrees, everything's going to be fine. And so sometimes murmuring and complaining looks like, hmm, kind of hot in here, right? I'm sorry, what'd you say? Oh, nothing. It's a little toasty. Interesting, right? Murmuring and complaining sometimes looks like this. Huh, it is so cold, I feel like I'm going to die. What did you say? Oh, nothing, nothing. Murmuring and complaining, that's, a, that's kind of a lighthearted one, but we all murmur and complain in many, many different ways. It often relates, it doesn't necessarily need to be towards an authority figure, but it often does and is directed. And in this case, there was complaining against the Hebrews. What is complaining? Complaining is verbally expressing that you don't like something. Not always wrong, by the way. So we're going to talk about complaining. Not always wrong, but in the wrong, in the wrong context, uh, it can be wrong. And in this context, it is seemingly a sinful type of complaining. Sinful murmuring and complaining often happens when you're unwilling to say, I don't know everything. I'm not perfect. I don't know the heart and the motivations behind this human being. And I'm immediately going to cut to my assessment of them. And I'm immediately going to say, I know better than them and assume that they're completely in the wrong. Complaining often happens when there's low levels of trust between two groups of people. Complaining often happens when you have enough energy to talk about the problem, but not enough energy to actually go out and fix the problem. Complaining often happens when you think that you're the only person in the world who has to have these thoughts, right? I'm the most rational person in the room, and surely they have no idea what they're talking about. That's what happens when we complain in a sinful manner. What is your reaction when someone who's in charge of you does something that you don't like? What's your immediate reaction? When someone who's in an authority figure in your life, parent, teacher, principal, pastor, small group leader, where's your heart at in that moment? 
What does it look like? What are the things you think? What are the things you say? Lots of people think like complaining means leading. Like, well, I just like super care. I just care so much. I have like things to say. And that's not always the case. Leading is growing and fixing things. Complaining is dividing things amongst people. Uh, you know, mom, like, I know you said I shouldn't go to this party, but, like, you're kind of overreacting. It's not going to be that bad. Like, literally, I'm the only one who can't go. And so it doesn't really make any sense that you're saying I can't go to that party, mom. It's just like, I don't know, it doesn't really make any sense for me. Small group, like, you, you said this thing to me, but, like, I'm not the only person who's struggling with it. And you only called me out and they didn't say anything to these people. Right, like, uh, you know, I, I know that the principal made this decision and they're in charge of us, but, like, here's why I think, where does your heart go when someone who's in charge does something that you don't like? Because, again, having opinions, having complaints, having concerns, those aren't wrong. But what we do with those complaints and those concerns is absolutely critical. And in this text, there's no illusion that the Hellenists brought it to the disciples or the apostles. There's no, there's, there's no reference to that happening. And so we actually assume that the murmuring and complaining just kind of spread like wildfire, and it eventually reached the disciples. Where's our hearts when we go to complaining? Are you willing to admit when that thing happens, when there's that gap of trust, when there's a misunderstanding or perception from one party or another, where does your heart go? Are you willing to admit that maybe you're not God and you don't know everything and you don't know where this person is coming from, you don't know their heart and the decision, and you don't know everything about it and you are not better than them or smarter than them? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to check your ego at the door before we complain in our hearts? Questions for reflection. Do I want to talk about the problem or do I want to fix the problem? Do I want everyone else around me to know my opinion except for the person who can actually make a difference? Do I want the authority over my life to be myself or am I willing to submit to authority in my life? Again, complaining isn't wrong. Having concerns isn't wrong. But biblically, Matthew 18 is a principle here that Jesus himself taught us how we're supposed to interact with other believers specifically. When there's an issue and a problem, first we go directly to the person. One-on-one -on -one if you can make it happen. Then, if you haven't won your brother over, if there isn't an agreement about the sin or the problem or the issue at hand, then you bring someone else. Here's the thing. If it's mostly just you, <laughs> like you maybe have to let that thing go, first and foremost. If you're like, I saw this thing, and everyone's like, dude, I don't see that at all. Might, it might be you, just a word of thought. But if two or three people are gathered and they understand, you know, we can bring this to this person, then it says go as a group. And still, if the situation hasn't been resolved, that's when the leadership and the authority of the church gets involved. And so there's a hierarchy of things to do with our complaints and our concerns in the church specifically, but it can be similar in our homes and in our schools. Where is your heart when you have concerns? Because it's, if it's just complaining, God's called us to lead. God has called us to make a kingdom impact. God has called us to serve. And complaining and having opinions doesn't exactly necessarily mean that you care. Those two things aren't directly connected. But when you really do truly care about the unity of God's church or your family or your school or whatever, you're willing to do whatever it takes to make this thing right. Verse 2, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. So this is a full gathering of people. This is a big thing. And they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, I believe that this problem 
uh, could divide this church. Now, the problem could divide them. They wouldn't be divided. Even with its specific ethnic, language, and logistical barriers, God would use this thing to actually unite his church together, to make it stronger, something that Satan would like to use to shake the very foundation of every good thing that's ever happened. God uses it for good. They gather everyone together, and they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching and the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And, and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. It's interesting what happens. I believe that this is what happens when individuals reconcile in a biblical way. I believe that this is what happens when individuals reconcile in a biblical and Christ-honoring way. The kingdom is multiplied and the kingdom's grows. The elders immediately hear the apostles step in and they solve the problem, right? This isn't like a lackluster, like, oh, we'll see if this thing kind of fizzles out. In many cases, they probably weren't even aware that this was happening. We can't draw too far into conclusions. The text doesn't say but I feel like it's a big thing. There's 10, possibly 10,000 people at the time, between 10 and 12,000 people. Like if, if, if a few things are happening that they're not aware about, it's, it's like a legitimate thing, just like because of size dynamics, right? And so when complaints come in a biblical way, they immediately are saying, okay, we got to do something about it. But what they say is very interesting. It is not good for us. It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. And then verse four says what? We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. They don't say that they're gonna commit themselves to leadership development. They don't say they're gonna commit themselves to event planning, social media, welcome team gatherings, whatever it is. They say we will commit ourselves to the ministry of the word and to the ministry of prayer. Those are the two things that are specifically outlined here in this text. Every Christian is called to minister to others, but not every Christian is called to minister to others in the same exact way. God given us specific roles, specific tasks, specific skills, things that he has uniquely and specifically blessed you with, your school, your opportunity, your personality, your influence is a unique thing. Right? I don't want to get too far in the like, your special message, but like, God loves you. He cares about you. He's made you in a very special way. And you are called to serve Christ. But not every single person in this room is called to serve in the exact same way. There's different skills, there's different sets of abilities. But every single one of these spiritual gifts that we have received should be being utilized to unite together the church, to grow it stronger, to grow its unity, to grow its love for one another. The 12 don't deny the ministry of the tables. In this case, the ministry of the tables is the ministry of charity, specifically distributing needs to the widows, uh, the Greek Jewish widows. That's a very specific thing, and they don't ignore it. They don't just say, hey, we're committed to God's word, so like, go figure it out yourself, right? They don't ignore it, but they use this as an opportunity and a moment to multiply the ministry of the tables. Verses 1 through 7 shows us that the ministry of the tables is multiplied. Like I said, the Bible teaches us that we all have spiritual gifts. Some of us are teachers. Some of us are servants. Some of us have administrative skills. Some of us serve the body of Christ with our teaching of our prayer, the gift of healing. All these things are listed in Scripture. But we all serve together together. One body, 
So when here, this elder specifically said that they're committed to prayer and the word. They're not saying we're completely ignoring this other ministry that needs to happen. Like it's not as important. It's not as specific. It's not like our thing is saying, no, 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 we care about it so much that we are so committed to God's word first and foremost that we are going to equip and send out other people to multiply the ministry that we have available for us. Look at this. But the ministry that we will devote ourselves is to prayer and the ministry of the word. Meeting needs is really good. Meeting needs is great. Serving other people is a good thing. But the word of God and the prayer of God connecting with God needs to reign supreme in the church. A radical commitment to God's word and a radical commitment to prayer is what makes the church church. You can have a group of people that goes out and feeds you know, the homeless. That's awesome. That's a really, really good thing. You can have a group of people that hang out together, encourage one another, and then do yard work for people um, who, are, who, who can't do, do it on their own. And that's amazing. That is an awesome thing. You can gather around, encourage one another. You can have lights, a stage, music, charity, all those things. But without the ministry of God's word and prayer, you don't have a church. That's what makes the church the church. The radical commitment to God's word and the ministry of prayer. And we believe that here in this specific moment when uh, the elders appoint these men, this is very much specifically talking about appointing the role of deacons, which we don't need to get too far into. But there's definitely a, a structure that God has built his church in. If you're a history nerd like me or if you're a Bible nerd like me, you're super excited about these things, but like 98% of us aren't. But all this to say, God specifically created you and God specifically created his church. He cares about it. He has designed it. He has created it to function in a way that is appropriate. And sometimes when we try and get ourselves into the wrong roles, things get confusing, right? And so here, the apostles, they recognize the supremacy of the word of God and the ministry of prayer. They don't ignore meeting charity. They don't say, that's lame. We just got to teach people, and that'll be awesome. But they use it as a moment to equip others, deacons specifically, to multiply the ministry. Because the reality is, as the church grows, so do the needs of the people in the church, and so does the needs of the servants in the church, and the number of servants. If you're going to have a community-shattering impact because of your local body, you need to have servants who are ready to go. You need to have servants who are being multiplied and grown into the image of Christ. What does it say? They're full of faith and the Holy Spirit, these seven men. These seven people chosen to do what? More of the administrative, the specific tasks of feeding the elderly, feeding the widows, feeding those who couldn't feed themselves. We do have to ask ourselves, though, reading this, looking at this, we will commit ourselves to what? Prayer and the ministry of the word. You have to ask yourselves, what does your prayer life and your commitment to God's word look like? You have to think if it's important enough to literally be at the center point of a foundation of the church of Christ, the word of God, the ministry of prayer, you have to ask yourselves, is it a foundational point in my life? Is it a foundational point in the way that I view the world, in the way that I view my life? Do you wake up every day 
craving and wanting to learn and understand more about God's word. Because God's word doesn't just teach us like good things that we need to know. God's word gives us life. God's word doesn't just give us positive affirmation and comfort. It does give us those things, but it also protects us from sin and the things that will kill us. The ministry of the word in your life is critical. It's essential. And if you don't have a regular rhythm of connecting to God's word, his truth and prayer, God's spirit, connecting with God's spirit, then you're not gonna have a foundation for your life. You're gonna be wandering out through, through, through life, confused, lonely, sad, wondering what's up, what's down. There's a radical commitment to the word and to prayer. What does your life look like? Are you willing to submit to the word of God? If you're here every single Wednesday night and you're just trying to, to come here and hang out with people, to connect with other people, to, to, to say that you have friends or whatever it may be, and your desire isn't to continue to grow closer to God through his word, then you're not submitting to God's word. If you wake up every day and you spend the first 45 minutes on your phone and then you like get ready for your day, you spend another 30 minutes in the car on your phone and then you go to school all day and then you're home and then you maybe spend two or three minutes in God's word, you just need to ask yourself, where are my priorities at? Because here the apostles know it they profess it so much. They don't ignore the ministry of, of the tables. They multiply it. They use their authority to grow it. But they have a radical commitment as the leaders of the church to be committed to those two things. And we, as we walk through life, have to have the same radical commitment to those things. And so you might be thinking, wow, so pastors and elders are so caught up in prayer and the Bible that they don't serve and meet the needs of the church. That's convenient, huh? Must be nice to sit in your room all day and drink coffee and read the Bible. This isn't the case at all here. Look at what happens because of the ministry of them multiplying. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And the, many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's many of the priests there in Jerusalem are now recognizing and seeing for themselves the thing that they have taught people for so many years, that the Messiah actually has come, and he is here. The word of God continued to increase. Because of the commitment of the apostles, there is multiplied ministry of the deacons and of the people who are doing the ministry of the table and doing the ministry of, uh, of service. The apparent division actually helps multiply this ministry. When the church appropriately works through complaints, concerns, all of these things, the things that the enemy would like to use to divide us, when they are dealt with in an appropriate and Christ-honoring way, completely benefit the church. They grow the church. They strengthen the foundation of the ministry. When there's an issue in their, your small group, and all you want to do is complain to everyone else around you. When there's an issue in your family, and all you want to do is talk about to your friends how much you like hate your parents or your siblings, all of these opportunities... God uses these challenges often to grow us. He uses these challenges to grow us, this apparent division, this apparent disagreements. He uses these things. But when we simply complain, when we simply put this thing in a box and say, this is what it is, my small group leader is a jerk, or this person in my small group is a jerk, or my sister is a jerk, and that is all it's going to be ever. We miss out on the reconciliation, the work of God, that he is trying to use to strengthen you to those people and connect you to those people. The ministry of reconciliation 
the ministry of complaint, right? Or sorry, not the ministry of complaint. The ministry of the uh, tables are multiplied by working through these complaints. The church and the ministry is going to grow, like verse 1 says, if it's going to grow, that we need servants to grow as well. The ministry is multiplied. But then we're going to see one of these servants, Stephen specifically, get a little bit challenged. Another new challenger is approaching the church. Look at this. So first we see the ministry of the tables is multiplied, and now we see the ministry of the word is challenged. One of these men chosen to serve would be challenged and killed because of the ministry of the word of Jesus Christ. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Uh, You know, the apostolic ministry is full of miracles, but also this would allude that uh, there's someone in a deacon role also doing minis- uh, miracles, which is an interesting thing to, to think about as we think of spiritual gifts and we think about the way that God is moving and growing his church. This is someone who is just called to the ministry of Christ, already empowered and doing wonders and signs, whether it's speaking, preaching, physical miracles. We don't know for sure, but we know that his ministry is growing and multiplying. Verse 9 says, Then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it is called, and the Cyrenians and all of the Alexandrians all rose up from Silica and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and of God. And they stirred up in the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law from which we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And they gazed at him. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. We see the ministry of the word is challenged. Stephen is a man full of grace and power. Boldness, right? We've talked about this, right? The boldness of believers and the spirit of God together in our lives creates power. There's power that you have when you walk into the room, when you know God's word, you know God's spirit is with you, and you're willing to share. You're willing to talk about it. It's something powerful. It's something that the enemy doesn't want for you and your life. And it says this, Stephen, a man full of grace and power. There needs to be grace when we speak in power. It's quite possible to have the exact right same thing to say, the the, the right thing to say, the right timing, the right listeners, all of those things, and completely miss the mark because there is no grace in what you're teaching at all. And then there's also many times a failure to try and have grace cover an abundance of sins, which is true, and to have no power in truth in the midst of those things. But we see Stephen is neither one of those things. He is a man full of grace first and power and was doing great wonders, full of power and grace. We see that this uh, guy has a good reputation among the people. Look at verse 10. It says, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. This guy's got a good reputation among the people. He has a good reputation by the way he's speaking, 
by what he is saying, by how he is saying it, the way he is firm in his convictions, but gracious in its application and its deliverance to other people. What does your reputation look like to the unbelievers in your life? If you took up people who knew you, if, if you got a list of people that you knew who don't know Christ, but they know you, and they know the way you live, and they know what you say, and you know, they know what you think, what would they say? What would people say about you? What are some words that would come to mind? We see that Stephen was willing to engage and also teach people with power and grace. But what would people say about you? Yeah, I think that guy's religious, but he doesn't really talk about it, you know? I don't know. Oh, I, I know she knows Jesus, and she's a real jerk about it. Oh, I didn't even know that they knew Jesus. They never have once shared anything about it. What would the unbelievers in your life say about you? What do they say about you? Are they surprised? Man, I had no idea. Are they discouraged? What is it? What would the believers, unbelievers say about you? We see three things that happen here. Three things in these uh, few verses. We're going to see what happens to him next week through his speech. But we see Stephen is called. He's full of grace and power, doing great wonders. He is controlled by the Spirit, verse 10. They could not withstand the wisdom by the Spirit which he was speaking. And then verses 11 through 15 show us that they, he is immediately being challenged. Three C's, called by God, controlled by the Spirit of God, and then challenged by unbelievers. And many times in our life, we're going to have a similar ministry. First of all, I've already said it. You are called to do ministry. You are called for a place and a purpose, and it looks different. We all have spiritual gifts. We all have things that we, we function differently. We think differently, but you are called to a mission. What has called, God called you to do? Who has God called you to do? What has God asked you to do? Do you wake up every day with the sense that I am on mission for God because I know God and he has things for me to do? So what has God called you to do? The second part here, we see that he is controlled by the spirit of God. This is a significant verse. Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom by which he is speaking. This directly connects to a verse that Jesus, um, or, or something Jesus says in Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, you don't have to turn there, but you have to listen. It says this, Jesus is speaking, for I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Aren't you so glad that in the face of adversity, it's not up to you to come up with the right things to say? Aren't you so glad that when challenges approach, it's not up to you to have a script written and memorized so that when the moment comes, you have it ready to talk about? No, we have the Holy Spirit and we are empowered to speak in grace and truth so that what does it say? What does Jesus promise his people? None of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict the truth that is coming out of your mouth. They may deny it. They may not believe it. They may make fun of it but they cannot contradict it. They can't give any reasonable reason or an excuse as to why it is not true because they can't say anything else because it is true. And you and I are controlled by the Spirit of God. We're controlled by the Spirit of God when we face adversity. God is the one controlling us. He's the one uh, professing us, giving us the words to say. When the challenge comes, is it like, whoa, man, hey, I, I, I didn't mean any trouble. Maybe I can back off about this Jesus thing. No, are you willing to stand in what? In power and grace. And in that moment, trust that God is going to give you the words to speak. 
What a step of faith that would be. What a step of faith that would be. We need to ask God for wisdom. How often in your prayers do you ask God, could you guide me and the way that I speak, the way that I conduct myself, the way that I use my voice? Could you guide me? Could you show me the right words to say at the right time with grace and power? How much, how often do we pray those prayers? If you're prone to getting your foot stuck in your mouth a couple times when you talk to people, this is something that you need to ask. This is a verse that you need to have memorized. This is a way that you need to be humble before God and recognize, I don't always have the answers. It's a prayer that we need to pray all the time. God, I know you've promised to give me your Holy Spirit. I know I have the Holy Spirit. I know that you can use me. You can guide me. You can direct me my words. Help me, God. Are you praying those prayers? So we got, we see someone called, someone controlled, and then someone challenged. And the question is, are you living your life and your calling so strongly that you are facing challenges? Because so often the answer is, no, life's great. I, I only hang out with Christians and everything's awesome, right? What's the ministry God's calling you to? Because it's going to be marked by challenges. When the, when, when the world says the things that you face, when you face pain and trouble and adversity, that's really bad, and you shouldn't engage in those things anymore. God's word says in this tr- life, you will have and experience trouble. The world will hate you because it first hated me. And we see here specifically that a group of people are bringing what? False accusations. They secretly instigated men to say these things. Behind the scenes, this back twisted thing that is happening. They're using them specifically, two hot things they're trying to challenge. One, they're challenging the holiness of this place and what Moses has set up for us. So a patriarch of the faith and a physical space that they really value. Both of these things, they're saying, hey, Stephen, he's preaching against these things. He's saying this Jesus guy was gonna tear down this place, right? Jesus was referring to himself when he said, I'll tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. He was referring to himself in that instance in this moment. And so we believe that Stephen was speaking that truth and they're trying to use the words that he probably said and twist it to the point where they're saying, see this guy? Look at the false things he's saying. Does he even respect Moses? Does he respect you, the elders, the authority? Does he respect the thing? And then they're, they're, they're twisting his words. They're challenging the legitimate truth that he is professing. When we face challenges... When you face opposition in your ministry, in the way that you speak, how are you reacting? Sometimes we look at this passage and we see what's going to happen next week. Stephen's going to be stoned and killed for his faith. We look at this passage and justice-oriented Christians, right? People who are really keen on the side of justice would look at this and say, how unfair, these false accusations, how unjust. Here's 25 reasons why you're wrong and 25 reasons why uh, all the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ. Here's why that you are living in a fake and false religion. Here's why you rejecting Christ. We can look at this passage and look at it with anger, sadness, and seeing the justice on full display. Wondering why and how someone would be falsely accused for their ministry. But we have to think and remember, specifically around this time, Good Friday and Easter. And we need to be thankful and praising God that someone stood falsely accused in our place and on our behalf. There's a glory to suffer for righteousness' sake. We saw that a few weeks ago. They counted it a blessing to suffer. When people lie about you, I heard they did this. 
Uh, I heard they're a Christian, but I heard they secretly like party every weekend. And you're like, dude, I don't, I don't do any of those things. When people say things, well, I heard they did this with their boyfriend. Yeah, some Christian they are. I didn't, I didn't do any of those things. We have to, one, trust God, and two, trust that this is actually a ministry opportunity. What does Stephen do? He doesn't rail against them. He doesn't speak against them. They couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit of truth that he was speaking. And we have to remember, in a similar space, someone stood falsely accused. Someone stood there with insults hurled against him. It says this in Luke chapter 23. The whole company of them were around and brought before him, uh, brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, Jesus, of course, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. So what are they doing? Misleading the nation, saying that you can't give to Caesar. They're using these hot-button topics to say, Look at why you need to kill this guy. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate and the chief priests and the crowds said, I, said to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching through all of Judea from Galilee, even in this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether there was, uh, the man was a, a Galilean. And, he, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length, but he made no answer. Jesus sitting in perfect quietness and stillness in this moment. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers, treating him with contempt and mocking him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And in two days, we're going to see what they did to him. We're going to remember what they did to him. Falsely accused, standing in silence, knowing that history would speak for itself. That God would be glorified, even when everyone else was lying even when everyone else was falsely accusing them. And we need to look back on this and celebrate this truth and be thankful. When Jesus says that we're going to suffer for his, his name's sake, this wasn't a metaphor, this was a heads up. When Jesus was saying the world will hate you because they first hated me, he wasn't saying people are gonna be kind of rude to you on the internet. When Jesus was saying you have, will face trouble in this world, he was talking about this kind of trouble. And so what do you expect from your lifelong calling to ministry? We serve a Jesus who stood more perfect than Stephen, infinitely holy, infinitely perfect, and was accused. Why do we think that our situation will be different one day? Why are we expecting different results? We serve a Jesus who is falsely accused. We serve a Christ who is crucified on our behalf. There can be no mistake that many of us will face the same exact pain that Jesus faced. But the question that you have to ask yourself is what will you do? Will you stay strong? Will you speak with grace and power? Will you be silent when you're wanting so deeply to settle the score and to make it right? What will you do? What will you say? How will you compose yourself? What are the words that you're going to speak? How, what is the way you're going to act? 
We're gonna see what Stephen does next week. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We're thankful for your word. I pray that you would continue to convict our hearts and you would continue to show us and to illuminate us where we're wrong, where we need to repent, where we need to turn to you. God, I pray that we would learn from the ministry of Stephen. We would learn from the ministry of your word being multiplied and your ministry being multiplied, God. I pray that we would all recognize that there's a space for us in the church to serve, that there's a space for us in the church to contribute our, our gifts that you've delivered to us. God, I'm, I'm asking for boldness for these young people as they face this level of persecution, as they are, are seeing increasingly hostility towards your name. We thank you and we praise you that it is of no righteousness of our own that we have this power, but it is the power of your Holy Spirit in and alive inside of us. God, I pray that where there's disputes and conflicts and complaining, that we would figure those things out together, that we wouldn't miss out on the blessing of watching you do your sanctifying and redeeming work in the middle of those instances. God, I pray that we wouldn't run from our calling, we wouldn't run from your Spirit, and we wouldn't run from the challenge that comes with preaching and teaching through your Spirit, God. I pray that we would be like you, silent, speaking with wisdom, understanding and knowing that history would settle the score and at the end of the day, you would reign supreme. You've given us everything because of your sacrifice we can, we can celebrate. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. This Easter... We get to celebrate. It is a celebration. It is the best thing that has ever happened to you. When you are excited about something, like if, if your sports team wins the Super Bowl or the World Series, whatever, that isn't the most excited that you should be in history. Listen up. The greatest event in human history, if you believe it, is the resurrection of Christ. And so this weekend when we celebrate it, we need to be unashamed in what we profess how we profess it, and we get to do that right now. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together.